All right, sit back, relax. It's time for another Laneway Talks. Hi, everybody. We're here today with Charlie Marshall, one of Melbourne's most indelible, uh, let's call it rhythm and blues players, um, indie rock player, um, alternative music player. How are you, Charlie? I'm all right. Yeah, just got back from uh, WOMAD, actually. Oh, really? So um, how long were you there for? Oh, the whole thing, four days. Yeah, first time I've been there. Uh, my wife dragged me along, even though I'm not a big festival goer normally. No, but, but it was great. I'm, I'm not either. I'm not a big festival <laughs> goer myself unless, yeah, the, I'm, unless I'm playing. What about you? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, I'm not a big festival goer, but it was great. I mean, a bit of an endurance thing, like... Uh, yeah. And who was the, the time when, was it was the time when I felt it was like uh, going to the cricket, you know, when I was young, you know, sitting in the sun and not much is happening. But uh, no, most of the time it was fantastic. Tell Got me, to who, check out a whole lot of who different the, stuff I wouldn't normally see. Who was the headliner? Florence and the Machine. Yeah, uh, yeah she was amazing. She, yeah. She's uh, epic. Got yeah. so much energy. They just, just running from the side side to the side of the stage, huge stage all night. <laughs> Because they just did two, I think they did two nights at Rod Laver. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, that, it was packed for that. Let's start a bit about you, Charlie, because this is about you, not Florence and the Machine. <laughs> um, and like, why don't you just start by telling us where did you grow up? Are you a Melbourne boy? Um, you know, I'm very Melbourne. I have lived in Melbourne all my life, um, and grew up in the. Um, <laughs> Uh, beautiful eastern suburbs, Middle Eastern suburbs, Ivanhoe, uh, in very, uh, very um, comfortable and safe there in those eastern Envir- suburbs. Environment, cool. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me. A little bit dull at times, the only thing. <laughs> well, tell me, Charlie, um, from an early age, um, were you very music-centric or did you start your music interest in playing as opposed to just liking music uh, at more a late no, age? No, I was, uh, yeah, I was. Uh, I didn't start playing till a late age. I was always into music, but um, until I was about 16 and I saw Bruce Springsteen playing on uh, Lee Simon's Night Moves back in the 70s, I was quite a passive uh music consumer i guess i just would get whatever was on the radio like had you had you learned guitar by that stage no no not at all <laughs> love the beach boys and uh, elo and um god love susie quattro when i was uh, 12 oh, years old I, when, find, when I, I find that amazing I, I sorry to cut in there charlie but i find that amazing because there's quite a few people i've interviewed and that are very similar um, musical introduction to actually playing at an age bracket like what you just said and you know they go oh no I didn't touch a guitar till I was 17 and mm. coming from someone like myself where I started learning at the age of I, thought, I suppose about nine and you know mm. go to school and drumming and you know do the sight reading and all that kind of stuff and then to get people that didn't really even pick the guitar up to really start playing it to their latter teen years. And I find that a real, that shows real talent because you haven't had, you know, I think it's easier when you're younger, you get a grounding in your rhythm. Yeah, well, I think it maybe takes you longer when you start later. I mean, really, I didn't pick up the guitar till 18. Wow. Um, And I guess it depends on you. I mean, so much it depends on your family or your school, I guess. And, me for me 
was uh, was that musical. I mean, my family was into music, but not in playing music. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, was, there was just nothing. Uh, it was uh, the cultural wasteland of Ivanhoe. <laughs> well, tell <laughs> me. Well, we're being cruel. There, yeah, I know you are very cruel because Ivanhoe is a, a very nice suburb. Um, oh, very nice, but uh, culturally not that uh, stimulating uh, generally. But uh, yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, I went to some great concerts when I was young, like Dizzy Quattro, Status Quo, Sweet, uh, yeah. Festival Hall. That that inspired me. Love the Beach Boys. Um, See, I, I, yeah, I, I Bruce hear all that. Well, I hear all Bruce that. Bruce Springsteen kind of said, oh, actually, I can go out and find music. I do this thing, you know, like I said, watching not, um, was it called Lee Simon's show back in the yeah, late nice. at night. And yeah, yeah. There's, there's actually music you, you don't just get via the radio, you know. You can actually so go to a record store so and that catalogue of Bruce Springsteen. That's fairly commercial stuff. Bruce Springsteen is a commercial artist. Oh, but but then this is like 1978. In Australia, he was pretty, you know, he's still kind of not very well known. Right. He was pretty born in the USA. Well done. Let's go back to Sweet. <laughs> Let's go back to Sweet. I mean, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I love the, the glam rock and the um, commercial stuff in the 70s because well, commercial stuff was great yeah. in the 70s, but face it. Well, I want all the I want all the listeners to go and and to you know listen to Charlie Marshall's catalogue and there's a couple of different iterations which we'll talk about and he's definitely not a commercial artist. <laughs> so no, uh, but yeah. see then um, Bruce Springsteen was like that. That made me feel oh, there's a whole world of music there that I can go out of find, and that was uh, an entry into. Um, uh, well, particularly UK and US new wave music, yeah. late 70s, early 80s. And yeah. that's what grabbed me. That's what made me want to play guitar, triple R, getting on the triple R, getting mixtapes. You know, mixtapes were good cassettes, were a great way to get turned on to music back then. So, you know, my sister, older well, sister, well, boyfriend. Well, how did you start? I mean, you, you then, therefore, you pick up the guitar. Well, I've like, like, got like this mixtape of all. Like I said, new wave stuff in about 1979 from an older acquaintance, and yeah. um, and you know that and that gets you onto Triple R back back at like 1980, yeah. and um, and you hear these songs, and and then what inspires me to pick up the guitar and say, well, I really want to play these myself, like the Cure. Um, yeah, really. I don't know why, but um, the Cure made me want to pick up the guitar. Boys Don't Cry, and it's quite an easy song. C D minor E minor play that. Well let well so therefore, how did you form your first band? What was your first band? Who were they? Yeah, well I mean luckily like a school I went to was very uninspiring on all levels, particularly musically, but there was one that, you know, said one close friend from school and he got into guitar a bit earlier than me. And he sort of taught me a few chords and then we formed a band, you know. So, you know, it was that thing, I think it was Lester Bangs, you know, once you get into punk and new wave, yeah. the famous thing of uh, here's three chords, now go and form a band. I think it was Lester Bangs or one of those journalists. Back then. Well, where was your, so, first, where was your first gig? The Toad. The Toad. You introduced yeah, to one yeah. of the best pubs in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 83, 98. So, yeah, formed a, I mean, that was a thing, formed a band. Just learned to do covers of Toy Division and The Cure. But was that the band that played at the Toad, just doing covers, or did you do originally? No, no, I did a few parties and then, but, but quite quickly, you know, didn't have to play that well. <laughs> quite quickly started thinking, okay, we want to play at some kind, did a few parties. And, 
Well, how, well, how, did, you, well, how did you find transitioning from doing covers, which is pretty easy, yeah. really, to sitting down and constructing a song yourself? Yeah, I, the memory thing here. Um, so, I mean, that's a huge transition, but um, I just, but yeah, it was quite quick. Like, like yeah, started playing guitar at 18 and, and Hair and Scare and did our first gig at the time when I was, Twenty was that was was that with your brother Chris or was that without? Yeah, yeah. So it was a combination of yeah. Like I, said, I had had this band with my school friend and then then my brother. I mean that was a, that was a big inspiration. My brother Chris, who's the lead singer of Hamscare, an incredible singer, was a couple of years younger than me, and yeah. we were both getting into this stuff at the same time. And uh, and so it was obviously well, and, and he formed a band with some school friends, and I had a band with some school friends. It was like, well, these bands are not that great. We're just doing covers, and let's take the best players out of um, those two bands and join them together. And yeah. that was just a harem scam. Wow. Um, and you know, we still couldn't play that great, but uh, I was on bass um, initially. Well, um, how long did it take for harem scam to get from? The initial point of not long, I mean, to putting up vinyl out. Not long, no, like a few months from reforming and um, starting to play Velvet Underground and Stooges songs. Yeah. My brother probably got on the, when the Stooges were using on them, it's like once you get into punk and you wave, then you go to the people who inspired that, you know, just, just the whole world starts to opening up in your brain and you just uh, find all this incredible music. It's well, Harry and were a rhythm and blues band, weren't they? Well, yeah, but initially <laughs> we were kind of um, wanting to be the Stooges because that's what my brother's style was as a singer. Yeah. He was, he was uh, <laughs> that kind of um, yeah. front man and crazy, wild, crazy young guy. And yeah. so, and the Stooges, of course, were very bluesy um, and that just suited us. That, that, that was like, and the Velvets and New York I think, from me, from my perspective, Harem Scarum um, uh, were the quite, you fitted quite well into that early 80s indie pub rhythm and blues alternative. It really yeah, well, just slotted straight in. Well, the thing is, like I said, we, got, we, we were just really interested in what makes music work and what makes great music work. So every time we found another thing like Iggy Pop, yeah. We said, well, who inspired Iggy Pop? And so, of course, we went back to the blues. And uh, and this all happened in a few years as we were forming. And yeah. and um, it was just that desire to really get to the, the root of things. Well, good. well I, I just want to I want to get a perspective for the uh, listeners is that let's, let's think about the band starts um, and it, when the band's finishing, you know, when the band was... Um, Oh, kind of, yeah, splitting up or whatever, or going on high yeah. Um, You were kind of pulling, you'd pull 500 people quite easily? Yeah, well, we were pulling sort of 500 people, yeah, and then we had to split up and then we, you know, the last gig there was like 1,200 of the Prince of Wales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. were just hitting our stride and then we were, we just, I mean, we hit our stride for maybe two years max, I guess, less, I guess. Yeah, and, uh, but how long so did it take people were, people were pretty disappointed that we were splitting up, so the laughing was absolutely ridiculously mega and bigger than any of the previous gigs, yeah. But that, that's why I wanted to say, so um, how how many years did Harem Scarum go for? Three years? Well, only four, I guess. Four, yeah. and from the beginning where you 
maybe play at the tote and pull 50 people yeah. um, to, say, pulling on a – because, you know, if Harum Scarum played somewhere, they they pulled a crowd, correct? Yeah, yeah, well, getting to where we could, you know, fill the Seaview Ballroom or the yeah. Prince of Wales yeah. um, or fill the tote, you know, nicely um, or quite easily. But, yeah, like I said, I mean, part of it, yeah, part of the legs. I mean, Harris Garen, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of amazed how many people, considering how short a time we were actually, you know, pulling well, reasonable crowds, uh, I'm amazed how many people know the band. And well, I think it was, to some extent that legendary status is, is due to, to some extent, uh, not just, but the, the, the final gig to, to some extent, because it was, it was quite out of the blue. It was, a, like I said, 1,200 people, which was ridiculously more than they should have had at the Prince of Wales in the 87 or whatever. Well, I mean, it was it was essentially quite accessible um, pub rock Australian alternative music. And the yeah, songs it was, it were was, good, it was, which is good. It was kind of chisel, it was called chisel uh, done in, in for... In, in an alternative indie way. Um, yeah. Yeah, we got into the blue. We got it started off as more raucous, um, obviously not as professional uh, playing Stooges type heavy, bass heavy stuff because I was um, on the bass then. But, um, yeah. but then we got into blues, then we got into the stones and all that sort of stuff in a big way. And so we incorporated that. And then we got great players as well. And by this stage, I, I'd been writing, like, how do I start writing songs? It's because I just love the guitar so much and love the rhythm guitar. So I moved to rhythm, to rhythm guitar and I would just spend hours playing through all sorts of chord progressions and Keith Richards. I just latched onto that kind of, well, tell me. Kind of rhythm style. Because, I mean, part of Harem Scaring was, yeah, then we got great players, but we also then had my distinctive rhythm style, which... Is sort of you know was then a combination of sort of John Lee Hooker, Keith Richards kind of it wasn't even normal four on the floor it was very syncopated. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I was well, and, I wanted to ask you. I mean, how did you go from you go from starting Harem Scarum to say let's get the pinnacle being Prince of Wales, and um, when had you considered that you'd gone professional? I mean, I know. Well, only 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 in the, the last. Six months before we broke up, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, could you like, imagine like, bands now pulling three to five hundred at every gig they play? Um, you know, they'd be totally stoked. And if you do it correctly, you can actually make good money. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that was part of the. I mean, part of the reason Amscan in some quarters had this sort of legendary status is because we only we got to that level and then then broke up quite quickly and. Um, uh, yeah, it was all quite quick, and um, well, we and it was very disappointing. With it. I mean, we were just, I was disappointed. We were all disappointed that it broke up, and a lot of fans were. So, um, yeah, a lot of people were kind of crazy. Just well, what, hap- well, and what then, happened? And I was, I was pretty pissed off. Well, where, where, had you actually been to uni by that stage, or, or your brother? Yeah, yeah, just finished doing union stuff yeah. but still didn't have a proper job which I never had for quite a while because no, I, I was musician who wants I was right into job. it and <laughs> I was right into the I mean this is what I wanted to do and uh, initially before we got a manager I was the person who did all the organising that because I was the one who was uh, driven to do that but um, well if you, uh, if you felt like that how did you feel after the Prince of Wales gig, there's always a deflation, and what am I going to do? Or had you already decided? I've well, got so much we already decided to break up, unfortunately. 
Um, and, and that was because of well, my, <laughs> my brother, who was the center, you know, the focal point of yeah. the band. Um, my yeah. brother was a singer, and um, he basically gave it away. Yeah. He, did, he did one day, oh, I don't want to get big. I go, what? What have we been doing for the last yeah. few years? But you know, isn't, isn't that isn't that that's the lovely part of life? Is people kind of weird. to do well, get to do what they want to do, and you know they, you know, I've found out with a lot yeah. of musicians, they get to a point where they don't want to push it any further. They're not interested. Yeah, but yeah, definitely, um, it's not for everyone. And, well, what did uh, you, well, what did you decide to do? So you know, did you go? I've got so much music in me. I've got no issues here. I'm going to power on. Yeah, well, no, I powered on, but and and here I'm. I mean, Heron Scarum did make another album, and that's when I started singing. Um, so I say Heron Scarum broke up, but it was the classic lineup of Heron Scarum that broke up, and then there was another lineup with me as a singer. Right. And um, we did a second, well, we did sort of three albums, but we did um, the first one was an EP, we did the second full length album. Were you still pulling the crowds, or was the cr- were the oh, crowds no, way, way no. I mean, no, we did a couple of hundred. If, I yeah. mean, we did, but but we did. No, we did pull crowds. I mean, and um, you know, we we we, we could still we're still a, a good sounding band, but obviously my singing was not the same as my brother's because yeah, I was yeah. not the, I was not the lead singer in your face yeah. <laughs> type of guy. But yeah. um, but the band that just. It couldn't last uh, at all because we got to this level, uh, you know, a reasonably high level of um, kind of success or whatever. And uh, yeah, we, the transition to me being a singer, we couldn't sustain that. And we had such incredible players at that time that they, you know, they needed to be sustained by um, yeah. by a, yeah. a level of success. And of course, yeah, and because they, they were getting offers from all these other people. Um, Barry Palmer, the guitarist, um, joined Hunters and Collectors uh, yeah. when the sort of first lineup broke up. And, um, you know, of course, I, the Harry Scarum lineup then couldn't compete with that. And the drummer, Peter Jones, um, you know, uh, filled in for Paul Hess, Crowd oh, House, yeah. and um, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, so. So that lineup couldn't really continue. So what um, did you? What did you? What did you form straight after that? What was the first band you put together? Oh, well, then I then I then I was like, what, the, what do I do? Bloody hell! Uh, what did you go teaching? Got to a certain level, but um, it, it uh, you know couldn't couldn't um, sustain it. Um, so I had to go back to the drawing board and um, and also yeah, totally think about what sort of music I wanted to make. Is that Part of the problem with me starting singing in that situation was we were just trying to continue on the same sort of band, very loud band, you know, rock and roll band, um, in the same mould as Harem Scarum, which was which was based around my brother's incredibly powerful yeah. voice. Yeah. Whereas I, I had a much more subtle kind of voice uh, and uh, not the most sensational voice initially. <laughs> It's well, developed well, over the know, years. For me, yeah. you're, you're a talking heads singer. Um, yeah, yeah, David Byrne kind yeah, of um, quirky kind of uh, more quirky voice. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I had to totally um, go back to the drawing board and um, write lots of songs and, and work. That, and, yeah, I, I, I what do they, they used to call it? Woodshedding. So you what was the first? No, you go I, back I to haven't. woodshedding. You got whittling or something. You go back to woodshed or something, you just whittle. <laughs> you, work, you just work on your stuff and um, 
Well, what, so, what did you put together? What was the first band you put together after that? Yeah, well, for a few years, didn't put anything together. So, I mean, Heron Kevin finished completely in about 88, and then my next band didn't do our first gigs till 92, really. Oh, wow. Okay. Four years. In the wilderness, last yeah, in the wilderness. Absolutely, was like that, James was that, Brown. Was that a fa- in the wilderness? Was that a family building uh, period? Was it? No, 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 totally not. Um, no, no, uh, a lonely period. Yeah, <laughs> right. So you'd written. So you'd started. So had you been writing? I was in the wilderness. I was totally in the wilderness. Well, had you been writing songs during those wilderness years? Yeah. Well, yes, I was. But initially, they weren't that. Great, I didn't think because yeah. um, I'd been writing a different kind of song with my brother, um, yeah, and very more bluesy. But I was thinking, well, I can't really sing that. That's not my style. So uh-huh. yeah, I got more into, um, and I got better. Well, I got different guitar and a bit more chords, and got into Dinosaur Junior particularly. Yeah. You know, okay. Warm guitar sound with yeah. um, interesting chords, like. Yeah. Um, uh, got into Burt Bacharach even, you know, just really interesting chords. I can't say I could get excited about that one. But anyway, that's everybody. But then even, even all those chords um, are in stuff like Dinosaur Junior and that, you know, those, yeah. taking, those pretty chords are put in a – and that's pretty. That's a little big thing of what I developed as my style to take um, well, how did the first, how pretty did that music but put it with a warm guitar. Well, not pretty, not pretty but um, melodic. Um, well, how did the band come together, the next band? Yeah, well, I, I had a, an, an initial lineup that didn't, and this is called The Body Electric. And, yeah. uh, Who was, was in The Body Charlie Electric? Marshall in The Body Electric, so this is uh, what I kind of got some some shit worked out. Um, the initial lineup only did a few gigs, it wasn't really happening. It was kind of old people I knew from the old days. But uh, um, but then I, I yeah, I liked to, I, I got under my favourite drummer of um, the old days back when Henry Skinner was playing, which was Jim White, uh, who people would know from the Dirty Three. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was always my favourite drummer because, like I said before, with my um, guitar playing, my, it's very rhythmic and it's very syncopated. Well, it, it's, so it's not straight down the line. So Dirty Three hadn't started at that stage? No, Dirty right? Three hadn't started, but I love Jim White's drumming and yeah. he's totally different than other drummers. So yeah. um, that, was a, yeah. that was really lucky to get on. Talk up with him because he was playing in a lot of bands. Uh, not the Dirty Three, but he was he was like a hired hand in a lot of bands, um, and uh, and then he said he had this. Well, and I saw him, um, Warren Ellis playing with him in a band called Busload of Faith. That was oh, yeah. a band very much based in St Kilda, who played at the Esplanade and um, Prince of Wales and that sort of thing. And, yeah. Um, uh, and he said, yeah, there's this guy, Warren, he's pretty interesting. And um, he did look interesting, but kind of un, uh, unhinged at that stage. <laughs> he's very wild at that stage. Right. He, he turned his back to the audience and, uh, and um, uh, <laughs> wiggled his bum a lot as he went crazy on his violin. <laughs> so, so but was he, did he join the Body Electric, did he? Yeah, so, so Jim said... Yeah, I don't think he just plays violin. He, he had this little keyboard in his boot. He had this little Casio keyboard in the boot of his car last time we were taking you out. Yeah. So I said, oh, I really want a keyboard player for the new band. And so, yeah, we well, could play um, electric piano. Um, 
and I and I somehow got a Fender Rhodes electric piano at that stage. Holy, and was holy sort of, hell! Someone was sort of giving it away, and um, needed a tiny bit of work, but um, the weight, yes, I had the a, weight of it all, lifting that goddamn thing. Oh yeah, they, that, yeah, and um, usually I had to transport it because Warren was uh, not capable of that. But <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't capable of much except playing great music at that stage. His life skills and those guys couldn't yeah. they, uh, develop yeah, yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so you've essentially got... Never mind, I know, you know the, uh, the contemporary Warren Ellis, but he was one of those a classic wild men of um, So you've essentially got the dirty, th- the dirty Three, essentially. Yeah, well, I got Jim and Warren, yeah. and um, and then we had this other bat player who was great, who, who didn't continue playing music for a while, but, yeah, he was also a very uh, inventive... Um, yeah. <laughs> Improvisation sort of play, so we had this amazing improvisation band, and yeah, had Warren on the electric piano, which was part of my plan because I, yeah, I wanted to make it sort of funky, more funky, like I say, syncopated sort of rock band with interesting chords, and um, the seventies kind of music with electric piano was a that sort of funky seventies music with electric piano was. A, Kind of, and so know. did it did it start to take off the body electric or did you not do that many gigs? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it was going yeah. So once it started with them, it was going really well. Um, but once again, it didn't last too long because Jim and Warren formed the Dirty Three. Yeah. Um, and they took off more than body electric. I mean, initially people were telling me, oh, the Dirty Three were. Your band's got way more chance of taking off than them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that quickly reversed um, because they just, you know, they just, yeah, Well, it was so different. And, and a thing that took off quite quickly as well uh, once they, um, so, so yeah, we, we did our first gigs in 92 <laughs> and, um, but then 94, I recorded the first Body Electric album with them and with Brian Hooper by that stage, um, <laughs> On bass, yeah. people would know from Beast of Burden and all that. Um, so it's an amazing lineup. Um, and yeah, so I, I felt like I was getting the sound together and finding the feet uh, again musically. And um, were you pulling a crowd yet, or it didn't really happen? Yeah, right? pretty yeah. good. Not, yeah. not soon. You know, I mean, only playing small places and, yeah. and getting hundred, two hundred people. Um, I mean, for the launch, you know, we filled the punters club, four hundred people. Yeah. Um, so you're really re-establishing yourself. I mean, it comes yeah, from a lot of acts. Yeah, and, 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 and could have, if these had just been ordinary musicians, could have um, taken it further at that stage. But, yeah, once again, um, uh, fate intervened and um, sort of break up of the band because the D3 went overseas. Because, yeah, 94, that end of 94, when, during 94, they supported, uh, you know, one of them. Agencies, Tim Pittman's agency up in Sydney. Yeah, took them under their wing and they supported every touring band, great touring band that came to Australia in '94, and, and quickly, you know, went global and went overseas in '94. And I never saw them again for a while. <laughs> well, where, where, where do you go to after that? Do you have another? Yes, um, once again, after sort of go back introspective to years or no? I got another lineup together pretty quickly, but once again and. and and once again, sort of was was doing well, and, and um, a totally different lineup because um, I was it the body work. electric or was it just Charlie? Yeah, Brown? yeah, because I had, you know, it was my thing now, and I yeah. was writing songs, um, 
that I was happy with and everything and uh, had the kind of sound I wanted to get. But then the next one, I did the second album and that was good. And once again, you know, we were drawing pretty decent crowds similar to before and really good crowd for the launch, filling the Punters Club again. Um, but... Um, once again, I mean, I got, I got the two young guys. I said, I'll go for young guys, you know, yeah. for the next one. <laughs> yeah. Nothing wrong with and that. You're looking for young guys. Energetic, enthusiastic. Yeah. They were fans of the Body Electric. They met them at gigs, and they weren't doing, they weren't going to be like the day three, but unfortunately that was Darren and Robbie from the Avalanche. Oh, uh, <laughs> Oh, I can't give me Robbie a Chater. So you're what? Yeah, not what you crazy. Are. You're, I mean, you're I a developer, a development artist. You well, I've been laid at people. I know. If I've been an A and R artist and repertoire guy for a, a record company, I've yeah. um, done <laughs> a lot better. Uh, uh, Income-wise, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it's... pretty crazy. It was pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah, we 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 were doing gigs and like I said, launched the album and that, and um, touring around, um, you know, up to Sydney and Adelaide and Brisbane and all the things we do. Yeah, and um, you know, once again, seemed like it was it could go further, but um, yeah, they said, oh, we we got this. Crazy stuff we've been working on. Uh, no one's going to want to listen to it. I mean, yeah. exactly the sort of things that people said with the Dirty Three, you know. Yeah. yeah. Interesting but crazy stuff that's not going to be commercial. Yeah. And I had to listen to it and said, wow, that's really interesting. You should play that to someone. And they did, you know. It's Steve Paz up in the city yeah. again. It's modular or whatever. Yeah, modular record. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, they... Bang, took off worldwide. So I just went overseas. <laughs> when the holiday, I just stopped playing music for a while. Yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> so what, what did you I got do? back so into what... it again and then... So the body then electric's we... gone then. So the body electric, you go, right, I'm going to stop the body electric in a name form and is it going to be just Charlie Yeah, then Marshall? it was basically Charlie Marshall. Uh, yeah, and did a few more albums uh, and uh, through the noughties and... Um, but then I had family and um, got a real job being a, a teacher, a science teacher. And um, you decided to pursue I got a real your, job when I was yeah, pursue 40, your real 40 years love. old. Was it pursue your real love teaching? Well, I've always loved. <laughs> I did science at uni. I did science at uni, and um, uh, eventually said, "Well, maybe I can use this to make get, actually make some money out of." I mean, yeah, till I was forty years old, yeah. I, I I was just like I said pursuing music in a sporadic fashion for various reasons as yeah. I outlined and uh, just supporting myself with, you know, uh, what do they call it, you know, uh, various dead-end jobs, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, well, you, know you, you do, you do. Never going to do for your whole life kind of thing, taxi driving, gardening, yeah. um, hospital orderly, yeah, but it's interesting, a lot of different, um, you know, different experiences, uh, <laughs> university tutor, um, Practical demonstrator at La Trobe University oh, in Genetics. Really? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, lots of different things. But, well, um, so what? So you okay? You, you develop. You so that's where you get to. You have a family. You yeah, start got a to family get the reality. The reality. Got a pro- proper job for life. Yeah. Right. I've never had the reality of life, but because um, it's, it's always been music. But uh, you've always been. Yeah. Well, I've been a living of music. Yeah. But. Um, 
So the reality of life sets in and, you, you know, you go, right, I want a family, I want to have yes. and I'm going to have to do some... I'll build a house too. Yes, <laughs> build a house and do yeah. what we all call real work because, you know, yeah. music isn't real work, it's love. No, no, not at all. It's not work at all. So... It's, it's- you just click your fingers and it happens, you know. <laughs> so tell me, <laughs> it's not so, work. So tell me, do you you you, you do this? You do, you know you you have a family, whatever. But then you get back to music because you do release over the years again. Yeah, you? well, I, I yeah, pretty sporadic. I put out an album in uh, two thousand one, two thousand five. You know, and only did a few gigs around each album, yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, and um, and then. Decided to go yeah, overseas. Yeah, then a major oh. break, but then by 2015, big comeback, yeah. <laughs> it just, the, just the juices flowing, Charlie, and just go, look, I love Yeah, music. yeah, yeah. Love it's always been the songs with me. So I, I didn't write songs for um, much yeah. for quite a few years, but then, um, then I, I, I went and found all these sort of old ideas of songs I'd been working on, in, yeah, like I said, in about 2014. Yeah. And... Um, and uh, You've become a bit more melodic. You've become a bit more melodic. There's no doubt about it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit more melodic. And, soft, um, softer, not quite as hard. Bit, I mean, a bit more crafted song. Yeah. Not quite. Like, in the early days, I was more like just expressing, expre- it was more like emotion, yeah. expressing the uh, music was a bit of a catharsis for um you know, problems and issues you might be having in your life, and uh, well, I, well, what I can say, like about breaking up with girlfriends and all that sort of stuff, um, bad well, relationships. But then, yeah, being a bit older, more mature, crafting songs more. Well, I mean, yeah. we, we we put the gigs together during the pandemic, and you were one of the acts, and we we put those gigs together because bands, obviously, and artists couldn't get to play anywhere, so we did those live to air shows, and that's where you put your band together now the essential two members there i know your son was with you and we did a song or two with chris but the drummer and the bass player essentially who you kind of play with a bit now is that correct well yeah (laughs) yes my sporadic um music from uh i I had been playing with them a little bit but then uh, like about 2015 when i thought right i'm going to really get back into music again they were the yes since then they've been my go-to Brian Colton on bass and um, Brett Connett yeah, on drums. Really good players. Yeah, and really good. Brian had played with Hugo Race uh, over the years. and um, I mean, and then having Brett. your son with you, I think, is a buzz. Yeah, it and then um, real buzz. In, in the last few years, getting the son Louis uh, involved, um, it's been really, really reward, rewarding and fantastic. I mean, yeah, you can't, there's nothing like that. Yeah. Um, uh, just a different thing. Uh, Does Louis want to become a, a full-time musician, or is he? Yeah, working? so he's he's got his final year of um, Victoria College of the Arts um, yeah. jazz improvisation course, and yeah. so he's. I mean, he's more like you. He got piano lessons when he was nine, yeah. and um, has been playing music uh, his whole life since then, and has been surrounded by, uh, you know. A household full of music, so he just, yeah, he, that's what he wants to do. Well, you know, it's, it's a funny thing you say, uh, you know, he started from about the age of nine, he was a taught musician as such, not self-taught and all that, and I was, um, I had to do some, I don't know, video stuff uh, just a little while back, and Craig Bloxon from Spy vs. Spy <laughs> said, uh, I didn't realise you played with the traditional method, Vince, you know, 
on drums. But I, mm. I don't know any other method because that's how I was taught and I've always played that way. So I played jazz style. Um, mm. But it's just because that's how you were taught. And back mm. then, when I was young, there was no other way. You didn't hold it the traditional rock way. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just it's a, you, you, you get a different path type and, you, you know, you stick with it. But that's great that your son's doing that and he's uh, pursuing Yeah, no. Uh, and I mean, what now? I'm um, yeah. I think I've been pretty active uh, since 2015. Put out I don't know, three albums. Uh, yeah. Um, and and still and still writing, Charlie. Still writing. Yeah, still writing, and um, I think that's fantastic. What I'm yeah, just enjoying it and um, feeling like I've um, you how, know how did you matured, find... matured and learnt the craft of. Uh, Writing and performing. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you, uh, how, did you finally. <laughs> how did you feel putting your last record together? Because, I, you know, we were a bit involved with you, but just you put it all together yourself, essentially. Yeah, well, that was the, I did it over lockdown and yeah. um, uh, it was the first time I'd done the whole thing myself, like everything, like recording at home and uh, mixing yeah, sounds at great. home. Sounds great. Yeah, so I learned mixing as well. So that's, that, and, you know, production. Um, yeah. In the last few years, that's been great. Have you uh, found that gives you a freedom, that that now gives you the freedom that yeah, you, know, oh, totally. you, you know you can put material out whenever you want because you can do it yeah. woe to go? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a gradual process, uh, learning more and more in the, uh, the whole process of um, making music. Um, but, yeah, recently I've got to the stage where I can – I know how to do all of it, which is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so and, is there more uh, material yeah, coming? More ma- material coming? Yeah, coming? yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, what I'm doing this year is, um, uh, well, yeah, starting to play again uh, after COVID yeah. issues and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I had some health issues with my elbow. Couldn't play guitar uh, for a fair while until recently. I'm uh, some kind of sorry, an yeah. RSI, type in, RSI type thing in the elbow, which is still there, but... Uh, bugger him. <laughs> there's no, there's no, Charlie, there's nothing worse. I get it in my left hand and when I'm yeah. actually playing a, a lot, and I mean a lot, lot, the throbbing, uh, you you just don't know how bad it is and you can't get rid of the throbbing. Now, I'm not suggesting that's what you no, had. But I have had that a bit in the last year, but... Um, you know, I did see one yeah. person who used to um, have a method to try and get rid of it before each gig was Peter Chris from Kiss and... He would have a hot um, tub of water and he would have to soak his arm in there uh, half an hour prior to the show. That's the only mm. way he could play. To, yeah, to get rid those of sort of things. Um, wearing a uh, brace and all that. But, yes, I'm just dealing with that. That's, that's all right. That's fine. But, yeah, I'm really looking to play quite a lot this year. And, yeah, what I'm doing is um, solo stuff yeah. uh, this year. So, no, um, just you and the... Just you and the guitar, electric guitar. Uh, the electric guitar, though. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's kind of like a folk uh, folk singing, but it's uh, with um, electric guitar. And it's also with a loop pedal, which I don't use yeah. like a loop pedal as such, but I use it more as a um, a, a rhythm, a percussion uh, oh, device. Yeah. And I I have um, uh, put percussion music in there because my songs, as I've said a few times, was so rhythmically focused, I find, I've done solo things a bit over the years, but I always find it 
not a hundred percent for me. Uh, well, there is the solo just, album just out. The lack of uh, what's that? There is the solo album out, which is the Tour of Europe album, isn't there? Yes, yes. So that's what I did in, in 2018. The same thing, yes, and that is on Spotify. Um, but yeah, for me. Uh, the rhythm is so important that I do do it in solo in the past, but not been completely satisfied. But yeah, I really like having this just a very subtle kind of uh, percussive thing that I um, I play along with, and that's working really well. And I'm going to be doing that quite a lot this year, and then going. Well, fingers crossed, I'm actually seeing someone this afternoon uh, about going to Europe again at the end of this year, towards the end of this year, oh, October, something like that. I mean, yeah. you, you look at Hugo Race and he never stops. He just tours Europe constantly. Yes. You know. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to possibly do something like that in the in the uh, coming years. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Um, but, yes, I've got quite a few gigs um, well, that can, can are coming I... up around Melbourne in the next few months. And I'm sort of in preparation for that, doing a solo thing. Well, let, um, me, let me ask you, what do you, uh, let, you know, we'll make this kind of the tail end of the interview, but what do you what, what do you think of the industry in general now? Things have changed a lot since let's go back to the harem scarum and now let's go to today. And the industry has changed, methods have changed, deliveries have changed. It's, it's changed so much. I, I, you know, of course, creating music never changes. You still have to have creative juices and people need to come up with ideas. But... Um, if we look at how an artist would develop today to when it was back then, it is new. And I find, mm. Charlie, that one of the biggest things Lameway comes up against, and we started as a heritage label, we're moving more into contemporary music with younger artists now, um, but what, what we find is one of the biggest issues is that they fail, musicians are failing to move on. They still think in the past, so they still think CD. They still think vinyl. And it's like CD, yeah, yeah. CD is dead. It is dead. I wouldn't even bother manufacturing. They're a scourge on this world and this, this earth. Um, they don't yeah. break down for a thousand years. So that means they never mm. break down. And vinyl, okay, it might be there's oil in there, but it might be, you can tell me, you're the scientist, but it's like a hundred <laughs> years to break down and or whatever. Um but these are environmentally disaster, uh, you know, definitely. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah no doubt about that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so different. Uh, I mean, like, it's still nice after you've done a gig to have people come up and buy something off you. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> we, we nice do have to think. I think I want to make it really clear to the audience. Uh, this goes back probably 10 years, 15 years ago. We used to get rid of so many. I mean, we. Uh, I think I was with Shock, not with Michael Gadinsky at that stage. Shock. And, you know, we were turning over in excess of $100 million. And the amount of CDs that came back... And we had to get rid of them. And you couldn't tell them you had to get rid of yeah, them. Yeah, it used to go into containers and it used to get all shoved over to Indonesia. Is it a disgrace yeah, uh, on, it's ridiculous. on yeah. our society I mean, that we did that? That, that wastefulness is no, 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 no great loss, no, no loss no. at all, of course. And, that, yeah. and that's why we, we at Laneway, we, we are so against it and because it's dead medium anyway and 
yeah. move on and try and develop, well, how do you get your music out there in today? And we know it's social media, which is our old Beat magazine and Impress magazine. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, um, you have to come yeah, to no, All I'm saying is from an artist's point of view, it is quite nice, you know. I mean, just on a really small scale, having a few hard copy things. Yeah, I, I do. I do get it. Pressing up a very small amount of hard copy things because it's nice. To, I, I get it for live shows. Tell a few after a gig and talk to people. And that's really. I mean, it's nice to talk to people after a gig anyway. But um, but moving uh, but yeah. moving on, it is a new world, and yeah, do yeah. you feel that you're you're progressing in this new digital age of music um, and, you know, how are you enjoying it in this new world? Because a lot of them say to me, a lot of artists say, I don't do social media. I say, well, that's the death knell right there. I don't do oh, social I know. media. Well, I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, it's a big cross. So you know, big that's cross. the problem for me. Uh, I mean, I do it, but, I, yeah, it's a bit of a problem if you're not well, into say, it. Well, say, for example, no, You've always had to do things that, uh, you know, to promote yourself um, that you may not enjoy. So that, that's fine. I mean, uh, it's just obviously some people laugh well, just well, doing well, social media well, all the time. I, I, I don't mind doing it as, as a promotional I thing. I want yeah. to put to you that if you, uh, this time next year, doing a tour of Europe and, you know, social media will be your marketing companion mm-hmm. every step of the way. Every step, and it's the way yeah, it's to keep your core, <laughs> your core audience in complete, um, uh, you know, uh, being informed completely every step, and that it will bring, it will bring the results in what we do. What we say at Laneway uh, with certain artists that we've worked with, if if you give us a year and you work hard on your social media. Um, we will get you, you, you will, but by what we're doing, you will get live gigs if you're still producing music and you're doing your social media and we back it up with our social media. It's a real coordination and it, this, mm. is, this is the new, the new way and, and it's the way of uh, don't record an album, you record a song. The album is dead. It doesn't exist anymore and it's about a song yeah. every six weeks and then it becomes an album after ten songs, say, for example. Mm. But I get really I'm just always trying to educate our uh, older musicians that we need to grasp what's happening now and you need to move with it and it's the progression of time and it's the progression of music. Um, mm. You know, there's this whole world out there and you've got such talent uh, because you've got, you know, 40 years or 30 years of, you know, writing music, uh, Charlie, that mm-hmm. why, why would you ever stop? Why would you not keep delivering for your core audience? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm hoping to uh, be able to uh, yes, do enough to um, be able to keep um, playing uh, gigs and, um, rec- and putting out stuff in the public sphere. Fantastic. Um, I mean, I, I love people at my age don't care about getting big or any. I mean, I, I just just want to be able to, um, you know, get enough people along to uh, to be able to, uh, uh, you know, a gig and um, doesn't yeah. have to be. It doesn't have to be on a, a, a huge scale or anything. I mean, of course, it's unlikely to be on a huge scale these days. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I like that. I mean, that's also why at the moment I like the solar thing as well because I really like playing 
small places uh, where you well, only you're need in a small crowd. Yeah, you're in control. And you're in control, and it's, it's a small crowd, but um, you're getting all the money yourself and that sort yeah. of thing. So for me, it's a good thing at the moment. Um, well, and, uh, we, we, yeah, I, I want to do as much as I can to support that to be able to keep doing it. And, um <laughs> Well, yes, hopefully we've got. want to go to Europe um, and um, you know get to other audiences. Well, hopefully we've got a lot coming from you, Charlie. We've got Chris, who just released a new album in the last six months, eight months, um, and that was you know uh, that was just fantastic to see. We hope we've got new music from you coming, and that you're out. Yeah, there well, I've got I've got um I've got a few songs all finished, and I'm just waiting to do um, film clips and that sort of thing. So, yeah, there should be stuff being released very soon. Fantastic. Uh, and over, like I say, this year. Um, yeah, next year I'm hoping maybe to um, do some gigs me and my son. Well, look, um, I think, look, let's think, new releases coming. Let's hope you get your um, your shows over in Europe and you can organise that as you did in 2018. Yeah, so like I say, this year it's going to be solo shows and um, new releases both uh, in a solo kind of format, similar to the, um, the live gigs, but also um, in a, in a full, full fully produced format. So, um, yeah, it should be a fair bit All right. well, it's happening been, this year. It's been great talking to you, Charlie. Uh, we wish you all the best. We can't wait to hear your new material. And um, until next time, uh, you know, rock on and um, keep delivering music. Yep. No worries. Same to you. And uh, well done for all your uh, your support. For uh, We love you. So and many so musicians. Well done. Thank you. We love it. Thanks, Charlie. Talk soon. All right. Cheers. Bye. Well, there you have it, another Laneway Talks. If you enjoyed that, just search Laneway Talks for more great conversations. G'day, folks. Mark Allen here and... The Ox, David Schwartz. Uh, and we've started a brand new podcast called... A Couple of Blokes, A Couple of Beers, and we're just chewing the fat. Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers with Ox and Marco. I'm thinking about whitening my teeth just so when I smile... There's a new episode every Wednesday. Have you got a weight issue? Of course I do. <laughs> it's a stupid loaded question. A Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers with David Schwartz and Mark Allen. I'm eating the kids' Maltese. You're eating their of... Christmas present. I am a piece of garbage. <laughs> Listen wherever you get your podcasts.